welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Interviews, where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and hear their story. I get to ask about women in leadership, I get to ask them about their journeys, and we get to hear about their wisdom. So today I am joined by Jane Caro. Let me briefly run through your bio, Jane, for the audience. So Okay. <laughs> So Jane is a Walkley Award-winning columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, documentary maker, feminist and social commentator. She's published 13 books, including three young adult novels, a memoir, Plain Speaking Jane, and Accidental Feminists about the life story of women over 50. Her latest book, her first novel for adults, The Mother, is a bestseller. She appears frequently on The Drum and Today Extra, created and presented five documentary series for ABC Compass, regularly writes columns in nine media, and her opinion pieces and articles frequently appear in the Saturday paper, The Guardian and The Big Smoke. She's also on the board of the Public Education Foundation. Jane was appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 2019 in recognition of her significant services to the broadcast media as a journalist, social commentator and author. Jane, I hope I kept that brief enough for you. It's wonderful yes. to have you here. Thank you. I really, yeah, I, I, it's one of the things I find quite um, confronting when people list just about everything you've ever done in your whole life and it bores the crap out of me. So I assume it must be doing exactly the same thing for anyone listening. <laughs> well, let's hope not. We won't be off to a cracking start if that's the case. But um, Jane, for anyone in the audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, why don't you tell us who are you as a human being? Uh, well, I hope I'm a straight talker. Um, that's what I aspire to be. I aspire to call it like I see it and to be as true to myself as I can be. Um, and I use what skills I have and my stock in trade is words. So uh, written word, spoken word, um, recorded word, broadcasted word, I suppose, um, to do exactly that. Uh, I long ago decided that there was no point in trying to be the best or the most amazing or please people or build my brand or, you know, build my audience or any of those kinds of things. That that, in a way, was, to me, it felt like a false god. That mm -hmm. really my, what I wanted to do was be as open, honest and as much myself as I could possibly be. And if people liked that, then wonderful and if they didn't like that and plenty of them don't um that's also fine you know I don't want to twist myself into knots trying to be what other people want me to be um and so far I have to say just being as straight up as I know how um has worked out pretty well as if you want to call it this a strategy I didn't think of it as a strategy Okay, so we're going to get into that and I want to hear all about your background and you navigating your career on the way through. I did see a speech that you gave and I think this was in about 2015 and it sort of made me laugh a little bit because it talked exactly to this. Um, I think you were talking about the fact that I'm uh, white, privileged, ed educated, a middle-class woman and therefore, according to many people, I have no right to speak up. Um, but that you couldn't give a crap about that and you're incapable of not speaking up. In fact, can't shut up about something if it fires you up and you're passionate about it. That is exactly right. I, I, You know, people are always trying to silence me. Mostly, I have to say, 
Uh, it appears men on the right, a few women, but men on the right. But there are the occasional, you know, very uh, lefty person who also finds me intensely irritating or sees me quite accurately as a privileged middle-class woman. Yep, that's me. I accept that and I completely, I don't deny my privilege. I absolutely accept that I have it. I, it's not that I've been born into a particularly wealthy family, although we're certainly prosperous and comfortable. But what I got was the greatest privilege of all, which was I had highly educated parents. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a better privilege than that. And that does tend, sadly, given our history, the world's history, to uh, particularly accrue to people who look like me. Yeah. Um, and I also had a feminist mother and a feminist father. Well, that's a gift. That's a gift that, you know, is is worth diamonds. So I accept the description of privilege and I don't reject it. My feeling about that is privilege, what privilege gives you is a bigger margin for error and also a better buffer, a safety zone that a lot of less privileged, less fortunate people don't have. Mm -hmm. So my responsibility, because I didn't earn my privilege, frankly, most of us don't. We certainly don't earn the colour of our skin, our gender, the class we were born into or all any of those kinds of things. So most privilege is unearned. It's luck. Yeah. Therefore, as a as a my responsibility in having that luck is to try to spread that privilege and use it as much as possible to close the gap between people who are privileged like me and people who were less fortunate in the lottery of birth. So I've never understood the privileged class who seem to think that their job is to hold under as much privilege as possible and not let anybody else have any. I've always thought, no, it's got to be wrong way around. And also that ends up with you with your head on the guillotine eventually. So not a good long-term strategy. Anyone who knows anything about history sees that. No, our job is in fact to say, I'm going to use my safety to take more risks uh, and to speak up uh, where it is safer for me to do so than it might be for a trans woman or um, a, a person of colour or someone like that who may find themselves in, in a very much more dangerous space than I do. Or someone struggling with homelessness, for example. Absolutely. I can be more forthright than perhaps they feel able to be, which is I'm not meaning there aren't forthright people amongst them. There are many who speak very bluntly and truthfully, but I take my hat off to their courage. They're yes. much more courageous than I would ever be. Well, let's let's think about that for a minute. And how about you take us back through navigating your own career? Um, and I guess I'm particularly interested as we go through that, were there kind of moments that stand out where you were, you were intentional about your next move? But let's not start there. Let's just start with your career and the story of you navigating. Yeah, well, I left, I mean, I left school and university. I left university in the mid-70s. Um, and, and at that time, um, only 10% of Australians went to university. Uh, so to have a university degree, and I got a very average arts degree. Yeah. You know, I was I, I was having fun, not studying. Um so it was nothing to write home about, but at that time it did give you an advantage. I don't think it gives you quite so much of an advantage now and people often seem to have to get multiple degrees and they seem to have to get very high marks. Well, I had a much easier road. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I left university and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher and most of the people who did English literature like me 
wanted to teach. Mm. Nothing against teachers. I'm an absolute um, champion of teachers, but I just didn't have that fire in my belly for teaching. So I ended up going into marketing and I was a massive failure. I really wasn't very good. I'm not an administrator. I'm not an organiser. And it turns out marketing, I don't know if it's true of every marketing or whether it's changed. But back then it was mostly about crunching numbers. And if there's one thing I can't do is add up. So uh, that was a bit of a um, bear And um, I was lucky enough to get a chance to go into account service in an advertising agency. And whilst that suited me better, it still wasn't a terrifically good fit because it, again, is all about admin, organising, particularly when you're a junior. Yeah. And I just look, sorry, don't get me to organise things, okay? I, I, I know my limitations. And so I, but I started to get exposed to the creative department and copywriting and that kind of thing. And I started to think that's what I'd love to do. But I didn't have the confidence to think that I could do it. I thought I'd love to do it, but I didn't see myself as very witty or very clever. You know, I was a mass of insecurities and neuroses and, oh, you know, I was a mess. Um but I got eventually a chance to be uh, a junior copywriter. And so I grabbed it with both hands and I did the very best with it I could. And to my surprise, as much as anyone else's, I turned out to be reasonably good at it. It was the first thing I ever did where I went, oh, I can do this. I, can do this. I, I had a brain that naturally, when it saw a brief, it naturally started to look at different ways of solving it. I, I often draw the analogy of uh, you know those computer diagrams where they'll show you the upside the different views of an yes, object yes my brain does that it turns whatever it is around and says what if you looked at it that way what if we looked at it this way what if we looked at it from up here mm -hmm. most people have a quite linear way of looking at a problem um, I, I, for some reason I don't have that linear way of looking at a problem and being a copywriter that turned out to be an asset I think in marketing and an admin, it was a it was a problem. Uh, in the more creative side of things, it was actually an asset. And of course, by being a copywriter, the good thing about that is that developed that capacity to take a kind of different view. Um, and I hope I've maintained that ever since. So I became a copywriter. I um, Enjoyed that for quite a few years, but I was quite ambitious. I worked for a very big kind of uh, dullish agency. And what I felt about that was that I was being asked to do my mediocreist, not yeah. my best. <laughs> I think a lot of jobs ask people to do their mediocreist and what they don't realise is how soul-destroying that is. I just like the word, mediocre. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a word. No. That up. Um, but... Um, uh, so I tried to get into creative agencies and I was very lucky. I kept all the work that had been rejected, which was a smart thing, because that was the better work, uh, rejected by clients, I mean. And so I had a, a, a portfolio of work, of ideas. And I got a job at a creative agency and I did quite well, started to win my first awards and then moved into the hot shop at the time in the early, this would have been the early 80s, the Campaign Palace in Sydney. And worked there for a few years um, and then <laughs> I got pregnant because I was married and I wanted to have children and by this time I was 30. Yes. 
and I got fired when I was four months pregnant. Um, oh, look, it happens. Yeah. And lots of people said to me, oh, you should take them to court. This is the early 80s. I said, if I take them to court, I will never get a job in a, a creative department anywhere in Australia ever again. I have to suck it up. It's quite wrong. It's quite unfair. Although on one level, they lost a large account. That's what always happens in ad agencies. When you lose a large account, your only overhead is people, so you shed people. There was a part of me that thought, well, I'm probably going to be taking time off anyway. Perhaps it is fair enough that I go. Yeah. But it was a nasty way to finish that part of my career. I then spent five years doing a bit of freelance, but more or less at home with small children, and I thought I'd never get back. So I started to retrain, and I retrained as a relationships counsellor. And uh, I finished that and um, graduated, but I never practised. I didn't practise because I had small children and organising client times and my times and my husband was was too hard. And I also got offered a job not a job, a freelance appointment for a limited period of time in an agency where they were looking for a writer for a female art director they'd hired because in those days and still sadly, there's this cliched idea, you put the chicks together, you put the blokes together. Yeah. So they got me in and I said to them, well, I can come in three days a week for five hours a day, which was basically my youngest child's preschool hours. And they went, okay, well, you're just filling in while we look for someone full-time. At the end of that time, about three months, they came to me and said, actually, we're getting more work out of you in 15 hours than we're getting out of the blokes in 40. Would you like to be permanent part-time and stay in this position? Brilliant. Yes, I would. And I think I pioneered permanent part-time work in creative departments. Thank you. It's okay. <laughs> I didn't do it strategically. It just happened. And um, I this would have been the early 90s, sort of 94, 95, something like that. And um, so I loved that. And I, my art director and I worked really well together and we won international awards all over the world for a laundry detergent campaign. Oh. The moral of the story being get your target audience. I've got two little kids. I'm doing a load of laundry every day to write your ads because my view was doing the laundry is boring, but the people who do it are not. But all the ads treated them as if they were because the ads were written by men and they think women who are at home doing laundry are the most boring people in the world. They couldn't be more wrong. Yes. So one little old housewife who was doing the laundry went out and took all the fucking international awards off them (laughs) which was great and basically my career took off from there is that the place um, when we met before you talked to me about putting your hand up for um creative director yes yes no that was later I got poached from the that agency where I did the laundry detergent commercial commercials by another famous agency I won't name them but a world famous agency um, very very creative lauded for its creative credentials and I was brought in to save an account uh, which again a bloke had written ads aimed at women and they completely failed and so I was brought in and save the account and lo and behold I did and so they offered me a permanent job four days a week awesome Mm -hmm. Uh, by this time my daughters are a bit older so that was four days was manageable and um I really loved it at that agency. I really did well. Um, again, 
our the work was good and we won awards and you know I, I fitted that culture the best of anywhere I've worked mm-hmm. and then the creative director who had been involved in hiring me left and they wanted to hire another creative director and I'd been there quite a few years and by this time I'd been the first female chair of judges for the Australasian Writers and Art Directors Awards. This would be 1997. There wasn't another one for almost 20 years. I think. So either I did a terrible job and they thought all women were crap we'll or somehow now. I slipped through the net that yeah. they had, you know, they designed to keep women out and I'd gotten through so they tightened the holes. Um, and so I had a reputation by this time, I guess, and so I put my hand up for the creative director's job and my boss called me and he said, oh, yeah, I see you've applied. I said, yes. I could tell by his tone it wasn't going well. And he said, oh, um, well, we've asked every, all the creative directors in the network, because this was a global yes. to list their top, you know, contenders for this job and your name isn't on any of their lists. And I said, well, are there any women? on any of the lists oh no no there aren't ah well that might reveal something about the pool of talent that you're looking at oh I see okay well of course I didn't get the job I knew I wasn't going to get the job I thought I deserved the job but I knew I wasn't going to get it and um I look I could have coped with that I always know what the real world is and you know I'll keep pushing making them confront their narrow perspective, all these creative geniuses who only think like this. Um, But I will accept the reality of it and continue to do my best. And I wouldn't have minded except then they did hire someone who must have been on one of all those lists. And he was an unmitigated disaster. You won't go on your own, Jane, having been overlooked for a position and watching someone... um... I'm assuming perhaps not competent come in. Uh, Incompetent and also confrontational. So half the clients walked out within a a year of his appointment. Wow. And most of the creative department were in despair and leaving if they possibly could. I left Mm. within a year and I think they. I remember one of the senior directors saying to me, I think we're making a mistake letting you go, aren't we? I said, oh, I think you are, but you've made a few of those recently. (laughs) Then I left. So some of the things you've shared with me have been situations where, I mean, you you had no control over the four months pregnant fire. You have had some good control over people along the way poaching you to come to other agencies, and then you've had a situation here where you've had someone come in that's clearly not a place you want to hang around and work anymore. Do you count all of those as being kind of truly intentional about your career or is there a point from here? No. So was there a point that stands out for you where you did go, right, what what next? Yes. Uh, well, it sort of came upon me gradually um, I, and it was actually in the agency when I was happy there um, and I went to, um, I never asked them for anything really you know, they give me pay rises and things. They were pretty good that way. Um, but I did ask them for one thing. I, I wanted to do a course and I, because I said, I think I've got muscles I'm not using and I'd like to develop those muscles. I think I was in 40, 40-ish at that time. 
And early 40s, yes. And I remember how much is it going to be? And it was, fortunately, I got in on the early, it was the Sydney leadership course. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they just started it. So the price was really reasonable. And when I told him, the financial guy said, oh, yes. (laughs) I thought I could have asked for a lot more. Um, Anyway. Um, and uh, I said, I've never asked you for anything before. And he said, no, that's true, actually. No, this is good. And so I I'd started thinking I need to, I can't keep writing ads. I remember I turned 40 and thinking to myself, I was working on a, a cereal brand, trying to come up with new ways to communicate crunch. And I remember thinking, I'm 40, mother of two. Do I really want to keep doing this for the next 20 years? Pays well, but mm. so... I started to get that feeling and then I went off and I did, had a few missteps before I got to the right place after I left the agency with the incompetent promotion and I went to one place for the money. I sh- That was the only time I've ever moved in my life for the money. It was a very bad mistake. My kids remember me calling it the sad place. It was There's a reason they pay you a lot of money because no one would work there if they didn't. Um, I, hope that, people, I hope people have just paid attention to that comment. I think that's a really important comment. If they're throwing money at you, there's a reason. There's a reason. It's something wrong. Yeah. There's a toxic culture usually. Yeah. So um, I then, if that was good though, in a way having to go to a place where I was really miserable almost from the beginning and not being asked to do my best work at all, I that really pushed me into being prepared to take the next opportunity that came along. And I've been doing Sunrise um, sort of as their marketing person. So they get me in and ask me about various things. And I got a phone call out of the blue from lovely Adam Boland, who at the time was the wunderkind and the who turned Sunrise into a huge rating success mm-hmm. and asked if I would analyse the papers every morning, five mornings a week at Sunrise, which would mean getting up at 4am. And I said to him, um, are you going to pay me? Because they'd never paid me for the marketing thing. Uh-huh. And he went, yes, of course we're going to pay you. And I went, oh, great. They weren't going to pay me much, but they were going to pay me. And I thought, well, I can't work full time or even four days a week at an agency if I'm getting up at 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. So it gave me, I went home and said to my husband, look, it's a huge, catastrophic drop in pay. Uh-huh. But it'll get me out. And it's an interesting opportunity. It's left field. Like, you know, I never thought about doing something like this. Uh-huh. And I always have had a philosophy for a long time, say yes to the most unlikely things that you're asked because they'll take your places that you wouldn't otherwise have gone. So I said yes and I did it. Now it only lasted three months. They wouldn't let me be me. Right. Very constraining. Yeah. That's fine. Um, But that means I'm not going to be. You've hired me because you like me and then you stop me being me because I don't fit your image of what the well you've you've blown your money you bought the wrong thing yes but it got me out and it got me on my own and it got me seeking new opportunities and lots of them came and when they started to come and when I was on my own for the first time like out of agency world and having a regular salary I had to think sit down and think about what I was going to do how I was going to turn this into something yes and that's when I made those decisions about I'm not going to try to be the best I'm not going to be trying to be the funniest I'm going to try and contribute I'm not going to try and be brilliant I'm going to do what I think is honest and right and I'm going to 
um, express myself and I'm going to, I'm not going to think what, how will people react to this? Will they approve or disapprove of what I'm saying or doing? I'm going to think, do I feel strongly about this? Do, does this feel right and true to me? Then I'm going to express it. And I'm going to say yes to everything that is offered to me. The more uh, left field, the better. And I'm just going to see where it goes. I'm oh, actually going to, sorry? I was going to say how lovely to have that, I mean, to take the chance. I think your whole career you'd been using that brain that analyses all these things from other angles for everyone else and all of a sudden you were analysing it um, for you. That's a, that's a really nice way of looking at it. I hadn't thought of that, but I, I, I think you're right. Thank you. And that feels good to think that I did that with sort of unconsciously. But yeah. I also let go of control. I also went... I'm just going to let what happens happens and I'm going to, any opportunity that comes, I'm going to make the best of it that I can. And I'm not going to hunt down. I'm not going to chase things. I'm just going to see what happens. And in that time I got to be a regular panellist on the Gruen transfer and that really turbocharged everything because people got to see me and, you know, some people hated me, but enough people liked me. Was it scary to do it or were you just open running towards it? No, I'm not I'm not scared of much of that kind of thing anymore. I remember the first time I was asked to make a speech, uh, public to be a public speaker, and it was just after I'd written that award-winning laundry detergent campaign, and I got asked to speak to a big, important um advertising conference. And I was nervous, you know, about that I was scared. And a friend gave me some really good advice. She said, go to the venue before the um, day and have a look at what it looks like because if you're phys- if you're aware with the physical surroundings and familiar with them, you'll feel more comfortable when you get there. Very good advice. I don't have to do that anymore, but it was very helpful when I was starting. The other piece of advice she gave me was have a prop. Have something that people can look at rather than you. I know a lot of people use PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. I don't or very, very rarely, mm-hmm. but some sort of prop. And because it was about laundry detergents, campaign and I was actually it was a day when I was supposed to be looking after my kids I actually took my washing basket and I folded the laundry while I talked about how we came up with the campaign love that and it was great because it gave me something to do with my hands and also I got a big laugh when I walked out and that always relaxes you I learned that always get a laugh when you first walk out and I'm very short, so almost always I can do a sight gag with lowering the microphone from whoever is in front of me, and that'll bring everyone a laugh and we'll all be off and running. Um, but that time I used the laundry basket, and so I got a laugh. But also everybody who looked at the laundry basket, you didn't feel that everybody staring at you thing. Mm. And so I built my confidence, and now I've worked out that fear is almost always caused by a couple of things. The first is trying to control the future. So you're trying to anticipate whatever it is you're fearing is going to be like. And, of course, you can't. You're wasting time Um, and you're spending a lot of energy anticipating it and you always anticipate the worst. Yes, you do. And you're trying to come up with every single possible thing you could do to if those terrible things that you dread happen and they never do the only things that go wrong are things you never ever thought of so it's really better not to stop it don't anticipate just go do it um and the other thing you do when you're fearing 
And the things you worry about with going wrong are all to do with being humiliated or shamed or looking stupid. Um, actually, don't worry about that. Uh, that might happen. You'll yes. live. Humiliation <laughs> does not kill. Um, and also you get good at turning mistakes and stumbles literally sometimes into jokes. And if you turn them into jokes, everybody's with you. You've got them. So they're your opportunity to actually be a human being up there, not a talking head, mm-hmm. if you look at it that way. But it's also about ego. So you're you're anticipating that you won't be as brilliant as you want the audience to think you are. They're not going to think you're brilliant. <laughs> well, maybe once in a blue moon, but mostly they're not going to think you're brilliant. They're going to be massively grateful if you don't bore the living daylights out of them. Yes. So okay. take the pressure off yourself. Take the pressure off yourself. Go out there and be as honest and true about what you're talking about. And remember, why did they ask you? Why didn't they ask someone else? They asked you because you have some information or you have a voice or you have something that's unique to you. So don't cover that up by coming up with a million footnotes or quoting a thousand other people. They could have asked them. They asked you. Yes. And I think it's perfectly all right not to know absolutely everything and to say you don't. And to talk about your gut instinct and your judgment and what you think might be happening. I mean, I have a particular thing that I talk to people about, about how organisations are made up. And my theory is, and why sacking people has the opposite of the intended effect. Because, you know, every organisation's got its strip of really fantastic practitioners. You know, I don't care if you're a hospital, a school, a real estate agency, there's a there's a thin layer of, my God, they're good. Then there's a big wadge of, Good, you know, fine. Not brilliant, but perfectly good at what they do. There's a big wadge of adequate. Okay, they're not quite good, but they're a safe pair of hands. And then there's a thin layer down the bottom of grumpy over it, never should have been in the job in the first place. Um, who knows what's up their bum, but there's a lot. And um, people often think, oh, fire that bottom line. Get rid of them. They're the losers, the no-hopers. They're dragging everyone down. Don't do that. Because my theory is if you fire that bottom layer, the bottom of the adequate drops down to fill it and everyone drops down. Everyone drops down because firing a large number of people in particular, even if they're the people that the rest of the organisation wanted you to fire, makes everyone afraid. Mm. It makes everyone more risk averse because nobody thinks they're as good as they are. Mm. They all worry they're not actually that good unless they're assholes and narcissists, in which case they're the ones you should fire. But if they're real people, they're full of doubt, no matter how brilliant they are. In fact, trying to overcome that doubt is what makes them brilliant. So all you do is depress the performance of the organisation, whereas if what you did was work really hard to increase the morale of everyone, well, Brilliant would get more brilliant. The good would get even better. The adequate would be even better. And the grumpy would get less grumpy. Everybody wins. I love that. On the way through, that's one of the best, um, it's one of the best things I've ever heard around imposter syndrome as well, Jane, in the sense that part of that doubting is what makes people so good at what they do. Absolutely. It's natural, the whole imposter syndrome thing, and yet everyone's sitting there thinking it's just me. Uh, no, it's what it's what decent human beings feel. Yeah. They know that they're not on top of everything and in charge of everything and think of everything and control. They know that. It's the psychopaths and the narcissists who think they know the answer to everything. Listen to Donald Trump. He knows the answer to nothing, literally nothing. And yet he's convinced he's, I don't know, king That's of the world. Crazy. 
That's narcissism. No, decent people. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. Jeff, I want to go back then to, um, so the Gruen transfer was, was, you know, amazing um, yeah. and you were amazing on it. And um, But that came to an end. <laughs> they wanted to freshen the lineup. Right. Um, and so they freshened the lineup. They did. And so, what, what did um, what did that mean for you? Um, I was very disappointed when that ended. Um, but you know, nothing ever lasts forever, and so you just have to get on with the next thing. And so, I began concentrating more probably on writing books and articles. I started to pivot away from advertising almost entirely. And to be fair to the Gruen Transfer, they were kind of aware of that transitioning that I was doing. And they, you know, I think they wanted people who were actually, you know, right in there working the business. And I'd had enough. I didn't want to do it anymore. And um, so I was transitioning away and I transitioned away into more journalism, into more, uh, I started out writing opinion pieces about public education and um, which I feel passionate about as a product of excellent comprehensive public schools in a time when most people sent their children to the local public school and they were all pretty good. And we didn't have this ridiculous agonising choice where parents always feel bad whatever school they choose and where kids, you know, I I just think, and the money we waste on, oh, my God, no other country spends as much um, private money on no better in education, frankly, if you look at the results and you can get from the local public school. Imagine what people could spend all that money on if they weren't wasting it on, I don't know, libraries that look like Scottish castles. I mean, just because they're rich doesn't mean they've got taste. Um, don't get me started on that. But I would write opinion pieces about that and there was a hole in the market. So I started to get published and then someone asked me to co-author a book with them. And I was delighted. I'd never written a book and I always wanted to, but I didn't have, again, I didn't have the confidence. I didn't think I could. I didn't know how. This was co-authoring. Well, I was used to working in a creative team, art director, copywriter, and we wrote a book called The Stupid Country, How Australia is Dismantling Public Education. And it's still the seminal text. Like it still sells and people still refer to it all the time and had I been an academic it would have really worked for me uh I was an academic for a time too but in advertising not education this is trouble with having lots of interests um (laughs) but so it moved more into that the writing of articles the um writing of books and of course um during COVID I wrote my first adult fiction I'd written a trilogy about Elizabeth Tudor for young adults which did very well And um, now I've written The Mother, which is actually, it's quite interesting thinking about it from a whole of career perspective. So it kind of brings together a lot of strands of interests and training because remember I mentioned about the Relationships Australia training. Yes. Well, none of that's been wasted because they taught me 
how to talk to people in distress or and I've used that skill so many times on panels when I've been facilitating them in those documentaries I did for Compass um, that training has been worth its weight in gold in terms of knowing how to draw people out how to ask questions and how not to be afraid of emotional responses because a lot of interviewers and I see them trying to scurry away from the emotional response but that to the viewer is often the most important and most um, kind of moving part of it's any conversation. It's the connection part, isn't it? Yeah. It's connection part. So it's been so fortunate. But the mother brought all that together because it was, it's also about coercive control and domestic violence and feminism and mothering and careers and mothering. And it sort of brought it all together. And that's been really, I didn't think about doing that. It yeah. came from here, not here. Not there. That's what ended up. Jane, you've always used your voice, and I want to get on to because a lot of a lot of women struggle to sort of find their voice. And I'll give you an example. Um, you seem to have confidently been able to always use your voice, which I think is a, a wonderful skill. You know, I remember someone that we worked with recently who um, felt less confident, and this was in a corporate environment, so in a you know around the table, so to speak. Um, so didn't put their voice out there very much. And we worked with this person to help convince them to kind of put their voice out there. And so they did confidently and articulately and, and assertively. Um, and after the meeting, the feedback got back round to them that people had been commenting, what was she on? So um, I know you might have something to say about that, but I did ask you as part of leading into this uh, conversation three reasons you believe we don't have more female CEOs. That might be a springboard to your response on that. Sure. Well, I think you can use your voice, but it's got to be your voice. So the problem with suddenly going from being the mouse at the meeting to the lion at the meeting is it will seem incongruous to the poor people who aren't, you know, privy to what's going on in your head. So I don't really mind people being a mouse at a meeting or whatever if that's their natural style. If they are naturally a quieter person, but it's only terrible if you feel that you can never use your voice even when you want to. Yes. Um, and that's the important thing. There's also, I'm often quiet in meetings, quite frankly, mm -hmm. particularly board meetings because um, somebody gave me some very good advice. I've only ever been on a pro bono boards, of course. I'm a woman. We're good at those. We can't do the paid ones. I don't know why. Um, anyway. I need to disclose I have a paid board role, all right, for anyone listening. <laughs> Thank goodness there are some of us. But yeah. they tend to be the same people on many boards. The, 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 the risk of earnestness, the fear that somebody might say something different mm. or might is, I mean, I do think that Australian corporates are very, very cowardly. They really are. Honestly, have some more courage for goodness sake. It's not very courageous to put a woman who you're not quite sure about on a board. It's not a big step, guys. You can do it. Um, you can always get rid of her if she's shit. But... The, the problem is that a lot of women don't speak up because they feel they shouldn't rather than they don't want to, and that's not the right reason. Yes. The other is you shouldn't talk just because you think you should rather than because you've got something to say. 
Um, and the piece of advice I got was if you've got nothing to say, say nothing. And so that's what I've been, I do, you know, I, I'll only speak if I think I've got something to offer. When it comes to the financials, I tend to stay quiet. Uh, but I'm very good at the HR and the marketing and that kind of stuff. Yes. You've got to know what you're good at. Yeah. And your voice has got to be your voice. It can't be a fake my voice. Um, and I'm always saying to people, the problem is that women are always told women lack confidence. Well, women lack confidence, not because it comes with the vagina, but because we are the second sex, because we have been subtly discounted and still are subtly discounted. And our voices and what we say is not listened to in the same way that men's are. Little example from my own life, I won't name the program or the panel that I was on, but I was asked a question about why there weren't enough trained maths teachers in schools. And I had done my research because I knew this question was coming up and I'd rung a number of people I know well who are school principals and I asked them why and they told me why and they were very good reasons and so I gave those reasons. The man who was facilitating the panel then sort of looked at me as I answered and then he moved to another lovely man mm -hmm. whose name I will mention, Bernard Keane, and said exactly the same question he'd asked me. He asked Bernard, and Bernard, bless him, I've never forgotten it, said, well, Jane's just given you three really good reasons why, and I can't add to that. I, I, I agree with her. And the look on the panellist's face, because I was a woman, I don't think he. I was a woman he particularly warmed to. I don't think, I think he may have felt, as sometimes some men do, that I'm too uppity. You know, I'm, I'm too confident about my voice. There is an expectation that nice women defer. Mm. nice women allow other people to take the available space that gets you lots of approval but it doesn't get you promotion or pay that's the problem so for women my view is this you're not doing anything wrong you're doing what this society has basically groomed you to do because we know from the Heidi and Hilda experiment which I'm sure you're very familiar with that when we write women rate women higher on skills and ability yes. we rate them lower on likability yes so a, a high achieving woman is automatically a bitch well that's a hell of a trade-off for women to make isn't it oh so for me to get ahead i have to give up the idea that anyone's going to like me well no wonder women kind of stand back from that and think and also it makes you vulnerable it's a catch-22 because if you do get ahead and you decide you don't care about likability, which to some extent I have done, when it comes time to shed people, well, nobody likes you. No one's going to defend you. You're much more vulnerable. So it's a horrible, vicious circle that women get caught up in. Women are not intrinsically any better or any worse than anyone else. We have our flaws and our foibles as anyone else does. But we're set up in society to have no right way to navigate our way through the, the world that men have designed. And so we constantly feel that we're failing. And yeah, we are, because we're actually trying to fit ourselves into something that doesn't want us to fit. Are there and so in the end, you have to give up on it and just be there. Are areas you feel optimistic about this? Like what, when you think about that? Where do you I feel, yeah. I feel very, very optimistic about how women have changed. 
if I, and this is what accidental feminist was all about, really, um, if I think about what the world looked like, I mean, I'm 65, 50 years ago, when I was 15, and, you know, nearing the end of high school, wondering what my life was going to be like. I had a feminist mother and father. My father had just promoted a whole lot of women out of the secretarial pool into management position. Doing that, this is a whole other story, but I have written about it if you want to read it. Yes. He desegregated the Sydney Cricket Ground, which is really interesting that he did that. Yeah. Because women hadn't been allowed to enter those hallowed halls because, I don't know, our vaginas might infect the place or something, bring down the walls. I've never known. Um, why? But, girls' germs, I think it was, like <laughs> the part of school. Anyway, um, so I had that behind me. I had that gift of people who told me that I had a right to a voice, that I was as good as anyone else, and that I had a brain and that I had an obligation to use that brain. So I had that enormously important thing to have hence I say I was so privileged um but the world didn't want any part of me it was, all the doors were basically closed and um so I went out there with my jukes up you know I knew I had to fight my way through and women were as critical and judgmental and down on ambitious women as the men were that's been the fundamental change and yes. that is so important Women no longer judge and um, uh, kind of dismiss and reject women who wish to develop their abilities. In fact, we have become really supportive of one another now mm -hmm. when we try to do that and we, un and we talk to each other about how difficult it is and we're honest and open about all of that. Mm -hmm. Women's expectations of what their lives and what their daughter's lives are going to look like are so different now from what they were when I was 15. It is a miracle to see that change and it is wonderful and it makes me so hopeful. Our big task now is to get men to change in the same way. And some of them are, and some of them have changed beyond my wildest imaginings. But we can see already that there's a very vicious backlash amongst quite far too many men, to be honest with you, and frighteningly quite a lot of young men who are resisting tooth and nail, who seem to see that any gains by women, we had a prime minister who actually said this, that any gains by women are somehow a loss for men, when actually they're not. They're just increasing the amount of choices and freedoms that we all have about the shape our lives will take because we'll be more partners and supporters of one another than enemies or master and servant. So many marriages when I was young were master and servant relationships. It's no way to live for the master or the servant. No, um, I um, I love that, and I think you are so spot on around women being much more open, accepting, encouraging, and supportive um, of other women. You know, another interesting thing I'd love your perspective on because you've been such a leader. Um, you know, by putting your voice out there and being you and, and sharing what you think on a whole range of things. There's so many leaders right across every area right now who are staring at the first time through managing through what I think is going to be some more challenging times. You know, what what do you, you know, what do you say to people in those particular situations? You know, how do you think they should focus on their leadership skills or what what do you think they should be thinking about? Well, when you're a leader, you take on responsibility. And my view is when you're a leader, you take on the most responsibility for the most vulnerable. So the first thing to think about is 
how to be kind and how to recognise what you're asking of others. Mm. Uh, and I do think that leadership involves you being prepared to do anything you ask someone else to do, particularly if it's uh, unpleasant or difficult. Um, it is very important. I don't really understand the new attitude towards employees, and I call it new because it started around about the 80s, um, where they started to be seen as kind of just um, on the management map. They were just points on the management map. They stopped being people. Right, yeah. And, in fact, my view of business, I fundamentally disagree with, I suppose, the um, Shareholders Act. I believe that business's biggest responsibility is to pay its workers so that they can live a decent life yeah. and be participants in terms of customers. I watched in the 80s when the banks began um, closing branches and shedding staff in major ways, and I argued at the time in Avatar, I'd say, this is really bad for your image. This is really bad. People, have they don't have a relationship with their bank. They have a relationship with their bank manager. Mm -hmm. If they like their bank manager, you'll keep their business. Mm -hmm. If you get rid of the bank managers, suddenly they'll drift in the um, wind and they're, they're vulnerable to anyone else. And I said, and also you're going to go down in the estimation of the whole community because they'll see you as just greedy and wanting money for yourselves. And also when you fire heaps of people from the banks or from any organisation, you're firing your customers. Yes. everyone's going to everyone's going to close their wallet when they see massive and i still don't understand that the share the market goes up when a company sacks heap of workers when we know that within a few years they'll have got them all back and it will cost them more to do so why are we managing our economy which after all is a made-up thing kangaroos don't have an economy mm. it's not a natural thing mm. human beings made it up we can change it and we should because we're managing it as if it's a blood sport, yeah. as if there's winners and losers. And I think leaders don't think like that. Leaders think, right, I'm in charge of all these people who rely on me and this organisation for their income, for their sense of worth in the world, for their sense of purpose and their sense of doing something and contributing. My job is to make sure that as much as I possibly can while we wear the hard times, they feel, continue to feel as valued by me and this organisation as they did in good times. Mm -hmm. And, yes, you might have to ask them to make sacrifices sometimes that happens but if you do make the same bloody sacrifice yourself you know if you're going to put a wage freeze on which is often a good way of meaning you don't have to fire people you say to the whole organization nobody's going to take a pay rise fine don't take a pay rise but maybe more than that maybe you ask senior management on high to take a pay cut maybe they're the people who can take a pay cut not the bottom I, I saw an article that you wrote, um, Jane, and I, and I won't dwell on it now, but it was an article you wrote that was talking about, I think, leadership post-pandemic, going, going back and comparing it to times like the plague and things like that. Where did I see that? The Guardian, perhaps? No, I wrote it in the um, um, Plus 61J, which is a um, Jewish online uh, publication. Fascinating, fascinating article. So I would encourage anyone to go and find that article. And there were things in there that, you know, there's so much debate right now on things like four-day week, working flexibility and, a whole, you know, a whole range of different things. 
And um, just one other story quickly to share with you, which was um, a wonderful executive who had been very loyal long-term in an organisation and decided to leave. And it was really, it was a values-based thing. She wanted to get out of the sector. And so she went off and she got offered a job at a new employer. Um, everyone's excited about it. And she was a young mum and she had been working four days a week, very successfully, wanted to continue working four days a week full-time. And the new employer could not wrap their head around how they were going to make this work. And I'm still shaking my head thinking, so she didn't accept the role. She got a lucky break, really, because she worked out their sort of attitude before she joined. But I'm still thinking they've settled for second best. Yeah, well, never underestimate the power of people's fear of losing control. And some people confuse leadership with being in control of others. Mm-hmm. and laying down the law and saying you will do the it's an authoritarian old-fashioned view of leadership it's not leadership it's something else it's controlling really um it's domination yeah. and that's not leadership leaders don't dominate leaders encourage and facilitate other people the best leaders and i've worked for a couple of really good uh, managers in my time mostly uh, creative directors they get the best out of the people who work for them. They create an environment where people can do their very best work, where they feel safe, where they feel respected, where they're allowed to make mistakes. They're allowed to get things wrong as long as they're striving to do something new, different and exciting. If you can create an organisation which has that kind of uh, really encouraging and nurturing um, approach to the people who work for you, Hard times or good times, they're not leaving because they love coming to work. You know, that's what morale is. Morale is I love coming to work. Not all the time. I don't love every bit of my job. That's nirvana. That's cult. No one wants to create a cult. Some people mistake happy workplaces as cults. No. Criticism is accepted. Some people get burnt out for a while, whatever. But basically people feel trusted, appreciated, and free to have input and to, in a way, control their own work. Mm. And when you're trying to say to people, you must be at the desk from here to here, you've got to do this and you've got to do that, that's the opposite of that. That's treating your employees like children and nobody will react well to that. In fact, they will revert and they will behave like children. They'll get away with what they can. Absolutely. Wise, wise words, Jane. You need to be out there having this conversation more often with people. Um, I have two things before we finish up. One is, you know, in the spirit of making sure that our conversation is contemporary um, uh, with you and I here, I thought I'd invite ChatGPT into the conversation. (laughs) So I asked ChatGPT to describe you in three words. Oh, boy. And the three words that came out, I think, after our conversation today are absolutely perfect. Witty. That's nice. Fearless and intelligent. Oh, I like that. I'd even put that on my business card if I was a big braggart. (laughs) Well, now you can because according to ChatGPT, it's not just you. An external source is summarising that. Um, (laughs) I did... um, I did throw my own name in there and ChatGPT has got a little bit of work to do because it said, as I am an AI language model, I don't have any information on a person named Melissa Hamilton. Please provide additional context or information. 
So I've got some work to do, Jade. Well, yeah, but don't take that too personally and think for a minute about actually that says something quite good about ChatGP or whatever it is. Because it acknowledges when it doesn't know, which is actually something we all should do. It's perfectly acceptable to say, thank you for your question. I don't know the answer to it. I don't have that information. That's wonderful modeling right there of I love that you have put the best spin on that ever I absolutely <laughs> love it so let's finish our conversation by asking the question I ask of everybody which is from your perspective what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change um I think it doesn't need to change I I actually think we've done incredibly well given the extraordinary weight of opposition that women have faced ever since they first stuck their head above the parapet, which happened much earlier than any of us know because we men keep disappearing what women did, as we're now finding out. Um, it horrified me when I found out that Gould's Book of Birds was actually every drawing is by his wife, Elizabeth, not oh. him. Not yeah. the man who got the credit. Unbelievable what men have been prepared shamelessly without any sense of, oh, you're ripping her off, huh? Uh, nah, nah. <laughs> My magic penis gives me the run. Um, you know, it's unbelievable what they've gotten away with. So, no, I, I don't think brave feminine leadership has to change at all. I think it's proven its value and the weight because it's the hardest of the liberation movements because women fight their husbands, their brothers, and hardest of all, their fathers and hardest of all their sons. And that's tough mm -hmm. because we also love them. Yeah. Um, most liberation movements are not necessarily against people that you also love. LGBTQI, yes, probably, but, you know, most of the others not so much. But for women, very much so. So I think we're incredibly brave in that. Um, what it is to me is in essence it is about coming to a point where you have become as much and as truthfully yourself as you possibly can and that you don't live in a world where you have to keep reshaping yourself to fit the tiny amount of space that you have been allowed that mm. in a way you just and any space you walk into you occupy it you occupy it as fully as any man occupies it or anyone else and you feel the right to that by being you not by winning the approval of the other people in that space but just by being you and my view is that as women get closer and closer to the truth of who they really are each individual woman because we're not a job lot we're all different from one another and that's wonderful but as we all of us get closer and closer to being just who we are and gain confidence in that I'm always saying to people when I'm asked to speak about this stuff Listen, you don't have to fix anything. You're fine just the way you are. You don't have to get thinner or smarter or do more degrees or dress differently or lower the tone of your voice or any of those things women are told to do. You just have to believe that you're fine just the way you are. You don't get younger or look younger or fill your face with toxins. You don't have to do any of those things. You're fine just as you are right now. You just need to believe it. That's what's that T-shirt? Oh, for the confidence of a mediocre white man. Well, it's funny, but it's also true. Okay. Women need to have 
that self-acceptance which says I can be mediocre I can be plain I can be old I can be fat I can be lazy I can be flatulent and I'm still fine I'm still okay I'm still a decent person and that I think is the essence and brave feminine leadership is modeling that self-acceptance because the best leaders don't pretend to be always in control, always perfect. They're often prepared to admit mistakes, will make self-deprecating jokes. That's what endears them to people. And people say, oh, I loved working for her. I loved working for him. You know, he was so open and, 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 and you know, I, I always felt I could be myself with that person. You feel you can be yourself with someone when they are being themselves with you. And we've had two genders who've been playing some kind of fake game for 2,000 years. One's been pretending to be in charge and invulnerable and never emotional and no weaknesses, and the other one's been pretending to be all nurturing, all loving, all caring, all submissive. Bullshit, 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 bullshit. Be who you are. That's leadership in this society. That's the bravest thing any human being can do, be themselves. Jane, in the space of the last two minutes, I feel like I've cycled through so many emotions. Um, the way you described that this movement has been against people that we love is so touching and real. Um, and it's the first time I've ever... I wish they loved us back. I think yeah. we need to question that. I think they do. I do. No, they think they think they do. But love is an action. It's not a feeling. Yeah. Who cares how you feel? If you're the bloke who's just whacked his wife around the head yeah. and then you say it's just because I love you so much, oh, what good is your love to her? Yeah. We need I don't think a lot of men, I'm not yeah, general, I, know, I, know. I, I don't think a lot of men actually know what love is. Love is not how you feel about someone, it's how you behave towards yeah. that. Women have understood that because sometimes we've behaved lovingly to people we really can't stand. That's real love, actually. That's brotherly love or sisterly love. Love is an action. Women know that. Men, some men, of course, understand that to the core of their being. Mm -hmm. But an awful lot don't. They think it's how they feel. No, that's narcissistic love. It's not about how you feel. It's what do you do and how do you make the person you love feel? That's the mother who gets up in the middle of the night, night after night after night, till a baby screams and screams and screams. She may not feel very loving when she's doing that. Yes. She doesn't. Yes. Jane, chat GPT takes the words right out of my mouth. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having the chance to have a conversation with you and I genuinely could go on for a long time. Um, but thank you so much for adding your voice to the conversation about brave feminine leadership. I know that it will make people think um, and I think you're exceptional at making people think. So thank you so much for um, for being you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. You're very good at drawing people out, um, as we talked about before. And uh, please, audience, I'm available for speaking gigs, weddings, Anything, bar mitzvahs, I don't care. Yeah, um, get this I, on the stage. I'll give you this talk <laughs> <laughs> and I promise I won't bore you. <laughs> Thank you, Jane.
And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.